0: Well, last week we had a fantastic time in those first seven verses looking at the water that came from the rock, and the Bible clearly tells us, and that rock is Christ. And so what a beautiful picture, and so many verses on the Lord speaking, how he is that eternal life, the water that goes forth unto eternal life. And uh, it's to come unto him and speak to him. The first time, we, he, the rock was struck. The second time, it wasn't supposed to be struck, only supposed to be spoken to. Very, very important. Christ only had to be crucified once. And now we come to him boldly into the throne of grace, get all the mercy and grace we need in that time of need. And before the throne is a giant glassy sea. Of the water of life, the grace upon grace. Well, we come to verse 8 tonight. Now, Amalek, or the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel in Rephrodim. Now, in Exodus, that's all the information we get. At this point, they cross the Red Sea and they're heading over to a few different locations. They get to Elam and down in the, the Valley of Sin, and and then they end up over at Rephidim as they're heading to Mount Sinai. We we had no idea there were other people around. And now we find out they're, they're actually, it, it finally got so bad that they had to go to war with an entire country. Now, we know more about this over in the book of Deuteronomy. The last book of the Torah, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 7 through 17 through 19, he actually tells us, remember back when Amalek, what they did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your, at your rear, when you were tired and weary and did not fear the Lord." So, they were attacking the rear ranks. They were attacking the stragglers, the, the half hearted, the people that were going, I think I want to go. I'm not sure if I should have left Egypt. <laughs> and so, they were just sort of at the back of the pack for a very much a different reasons. Um, some were just tired, some were weary. Some who, uh, and, and these Amalekites, they had no fear of God. Remember, that was one of the calling cards. That the Lord said, when you go to the promised land, people are going to hear about what I did in Egypt, and they're going to fear before you get there. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Remember Rahab there in Jericho said, man, we heard what God did, and you don't know about it, but our hearts melted within us when we heard that you were close by but not so much with the Amalekites. He goes on in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 25 to say, Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Wow. The story is quite extensive as we go through all of the scripture. We go all the way back to Genesis 36 and we discover that he's the grandson of Esau, Amalek, and we know how the Edomites (laughs) felt about Israel. Well, so did some other kids and grandkids of Esau. They also did not like Israel. And we're going to discover that this did not end. This battle didn't end it. In Numbers 13, 29, Numbers 14, 45, Judges chapter 3, verse 13, and Judges chapter 6, verse 3. They're going to continually, continually, annoyingly attack Israel until finally when they get a king and God tells Saul in 1 Samuel, you might remember those chapters. Yeah, just shut off one of the microphones there, Um Josh getting feedback. And, um, and so he, he said, I want you to go down, and here's the thing because there's such a putrid nation to me, you can't take any spoil back. And you are to kill everything. As David said in the Psalms, blessed are those who dash the babies against the rocks. Well, this is one of those situations. Again, why? Uh, They were probably very much a disease spiritually as well as physically with various diseases from their horrible, um, pagan, idolatrous ways. But either way, this was God's command. And Saul, remember, went down there, and when he saw the best, he kept it of the sheep and of the livestock. And he brought back a trophy. Good old King Agag. Nobody understands being a king like another king. And as kings understand each other, we show each other respect. So I let him live, and that's what kings do, you know. And then Samuel showed up and said, Saul, what have you done? Oh, blessed the Lord, I obeyed God perfectly. Why, what's the bleeding of the sheep I hear? And Saul was quick on his feet. He's like, now I told the people not to bring that back, but they wanted to bring it back only to sacrifice to God. <laughs> and then one of those great lines in the Bible, to obey is what? Better than sacrifice. And rebellion is as witchcraft stubbornness is as idolatry and God has rejected you from being king and Saul said well please just make it look good in front of the people (laughs) and Samuel's like okay (laughs) but yet God had rejected him and replaced him with another which would later be King David well, years later, one of his great grandsons of David, King Hezekiah, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 42 to 43, would finally actually carry out the edict and wiping out the Malachites. Now, you would think that would be the end of the story. Because we don't hear about them ever again until we get to the last historical book in the Old Testament. Esther. You know that one, good one. And in that story, we don't have a guy who's specifically called an Amalekite, but all of a sudden we have somebody being called an Agagite of the lineage of Agag. So evidently in that few hours, days, why King Agag came back from Amalekite, he impregnated a lady who was able to carry on somehow that lineage, and that ancestor of King Agag, that Amalekite, was a guy named Ammon who absolutely despised the Jews and worked it out nearly to wipe out all the Jews worldwide at that time, which is a pretty powerful thing when you realize the depth of this man's hatred and how he represented the Antichrist himself. So there's quite a story here. Well, let's read about it in in verses nine through verse 13 now. So Moses said to Joshua, "'Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek.'" Now you gotta remember that Ephesian, the Egyptians very specifically, did not let the Hebrews learn how to train for war. They were simply physical labor. So these guys for hundreds of years had in the back of their mind drilled into them, you don't touch a sword, you don't touch a spear, you don't learn how to shoot an arrow. And if you knew any of those things, you would probably be in serious trouble as slaves in Egypt. But all of a sudden, they got to go down and they got to fight like warriors when they've never done that before but Joshua we're going to learn a lot about him but he doesn't blink an eye he just goes grab some guys we're going to go fight and battle and they're you know looking at what to do <laughs> they got a few spare swords and a few shields and a couple of spears and uh, we're just going down to fight cuz that's we have no choice they're picking us off little by little with this guerrilla warfare ta- tactic taking out the weary and the the sickly and the half-hearted and uh, we got to go and, and stop this leaking by them killing people little by little. So tomorrow, Moses said in verse 9, I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now we know who Aaron is, his brother Hur. We don't know. We don't know who that is in history. Uh, We know who Ben-Hur is, but that's a, that's a, that's a movie. Um, The son of her. We know who the son is, but we don't know who her is. Verse 11. So it was when Moses held up his hand and Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Uh, And I wonder how they figured that out. You know, Moses crying out going, Lord, help us. And he's got that rod and he's lifted it up over his head and and, and Aaron and her said, wow, they're winning. Look at this. And Moses came over and looked and goes, they're losing. What are you talking about? Lord, help us. And by trial and error, maybe they, they finally figured it out. Wow, when this, my hands are up and the rod is above my head, we have victory. When that comes down, we begin to lose. So I have to keep my hands above my head. Now, we've done that a few times, right? When we try to worship for just a few seconds. And immediately, oh man, we get tired. And... But this is an 80-year-old guy. And he's having to keep him up from the sun coming up till the sun goes down. Well, in verse 12, so Moses' hands became heavy, of course. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it, and Aaron and Hurd supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So he couldn't push up anymore, so he just hung on for dear life and and put a little piece on each of their soldier, soldiers, and they, they stood there, got on their knees, or uh, however they did it, and Moses just sort of held on uh, with his weight on top of them. And so it was as equally as painful to those guys, right? I mean, this this was a three-man job, and they were all in some physical, difficult pain. Remember, Aaron was his older brother, not his younger brother. And uh, and so Joshua, verse 13, defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. They had victory. So I don't know if I finished. They had one on one side and one on the other, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua defeated Amalek. The hands up. You know, David in Psalms 628, 2 said, Hear the voice of my supplication. That's earnest, intense praying, crying out to God. Hear my voice of my supplication when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Do you think David had that Moses story in mind? Possibly? I think he could have. Thinking, man, I'm Moses. Crying out on, on behalf of my people with my hands lifted up. In 1 Timothy 2 8, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, it's the Lord speaking, I therefore, I would therefore that men pray everywhere parks, corners, in the house, in the living room, in the backyard. Men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Holy hands, not the, not the hand that you lift up when the guy cuts you off on the freeway. Not the hands when you're doubting, why me, Lord? Ah. Not the hands at the football game, yay, we win, we got we a touchdown. But holy hands, holy, you're lifting him up as a holy hands like Moses did, unto the Lord crying out to God for victory, when victory most likely wouldn't be yours. And the hands became heavy and weary. You know, I think somehow in our American Christianity, even though we know Christianity doesn't look like that in Russia or China or anywhere in the Middle East, we know Christianity isn't easy in any of those places. It's very hard in most of those places. Yet in our mentality, it's almost like if it's not easy, something's wrong with it. I, I need to find a new church. It's not easy to go to church there. You know, I, I remember years back in one of our buildings, we had a, a small parking lot with the biggest one we could fit, but we had people walking through fields and parked way up this hill and down these hills, and and um, and I remember one day coming to church late, and there was a lady coming down in her high hills, down this steep hill, and I just was going, Lord, help us here, and we were at a city meeting, and and one of the neighbors was complaining that we're parking all over the place, and uh, I was going to try to address this, because they were pretty upset at this county meeting, and, and I started to say, and One of the neighbors said, or one of the the guys on the council said, nobody's going to go to church if they got to walk up a hill, if they have to walk down some hills. I I don't believe they're parking there for the church. Nobody would make that kind of effort to go to church. I'm just like, I don't say anything. (laughs) But that's the mentality, you know? Oh, I couldn't get a close parking place, so I just left. Well, you could have parked three rows over. Well, no, that's too far for me. I just turned around and left. So again, there's sort of that mentality. If if we're praying and it starts to hurt, it's not God anymore. If we're witnessing and it's hard, if we're listening to a sermon and it's hard, if we're worshiping and my hands are getting heavy, well, this isn't the Lord that I would keep my hands up because my shoulders are hurting. This is a mentality that, that I think we have adapted in, a, in American Christianity and why American Christianity is your, used to be European Christianity. It's not working anymore. But no, you can very much be working hard with a lot of effort, a lot of labor, a lot of sweat and tears, and it very much be the Lord. In Luke 11, at the end of Jesus' ministry... At the beginning, interesting, in Matthew, they said Jesus teaches to pray. Now, at the end of Jesus' ministry, they're like, teach us to pray again. I, I love what Spurgeon said. I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. If you can get one man praying, you'll have far greater effectiveness on any church or any city than ten men preaching. Prayer can never be left out of the equation well, you know, in, in Luke 11, Jesus just said, Hey, it's like a, a guy that goes to his best friend in the middle of the night saying, Hey, some friends came out of town. Uh, they surprised me, and I need to lay some food before them. I don't have anything. Would you get me up and give me some food? And he goes, Hey, everybody's in bed. In those times, you got the kids to bed, the sheep, the dogs, the goat, the chickens, everybody's settled. And, uh, and you're banging on the window, go away. You're you're getting everybody disturbed. Everybody's in bed. And he's like, I need the, I need the bread, get up. I don't care if it wakes everybody up. Get up. And these are best friends, right? And finally, the guy just keeps knocking and being anointing. And the guy said, Okay, how much do you want? He gives everyone all the bread he wants. Jesus said, This is this is the mentality of prayer. In prayer, you're not interrupting God. God, you're so holy, I'm so not. You're so wonderful, and I'm so not. I'm not worthy to talk to you, but I'm going to talk to you. Well, I won't talk to you. I'll talk to your mother, Mary. Let her talk to you, because I, it's who am, who am I to talk to the big guy? This is the mentality of a lot of people. No, we're to come boldly to that throne of grace. He's our buddy. Get up and get me something. I no go away, leave me alone, everybody's in bed. Ah, okay, go back to sleep if you want. I'm not gonna let, quit annoying you till you get up. Finally he gets up, Jesus said, this is the mentality. When I pray, you're, you're seeing me and you're saying, Jesus, your teaching's great. Miracles are awesome. Seeing you walk on water, wow. But the real key is your prayer life. And there's something going on in your heart There's something going on in your mind. There's some insight you have that we don't have that we want. What is it? And they heard what he said the first time in Matthew. It was very similar teachings. It is different here than Matthew. He adds quite a bit more. But in both cases, it's the same thing. It's a persistent certainty And you won't stop until that will of God happens in your prayer life. And so he says, ask, in the Greek it's in the present, which is in a continuous form. Ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, Knock, keep on knocking. Everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everybody who knocks the door is open. Think about it, you fathers, you're evil. (laughs) Especially in comparison to God, we're evil, right? But yet, how much do you love your child? Would you pack your son a rattlesnake sandwich and he opens it up and there's a snake? Oh, that'd be funny. Would you do that to your kid? Would you put a scorpion in there? Now, if you being evil would only want to give the best to your children, how much more? Does our good, holy, loving, wonderful Father want to give good things to those who ask him? In Matthew, in Luke, it says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. There's another story, a rather very bizarre story. In Matthew 15, and this is when Jesus crosses the border and goes down to Sidon and Tyre. A Gentile area, but there was a Jewish community there. But this lady, who I believe was a witch, because she shows up begging Jesus because her daughter is severely demon possessed. I think she was a tarot reader or some some uh, psychic or something, and the demons, you know, treated her badly and possessed her daughter. And we know in other stories how severe that can be, throwing him into the water and into the fire and living in the graves and not even chains could hold him. We know how horrible that scene can be. But this story is interesting because Jesus, after hearing this lady's petition to help her with her demon-possessed daughter, he answers her not a word. It tells us in Matthew 15, 23. But it's always good to have his followers help you out. And the disciples said, Jesus, get rid of her. She's embarrassing us. She's crying out after us. This is this is horrible PR. It's freaking people out to say something. But what you need to say is get lost. So Jesus does that. He basically turns around, and tells her to get lost. He answered her, this Canaanite woman, I'm only sent to the Jews, which every rabbi that had ever come through would have said the same thing. We're only interested in the Jews, the the children of Israel. Well, with that, she bowed down and worshiped him and said, Help me, Lord. So he answered her with that wonderful, humble heart of faith. It's not good to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Was there any encouragement there? (laughs) You're a dog. I'm not going to give the children, Israel, the, the bread of the children to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat crumbs when it's fallen from the master's table. Jesus said to her, "O oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You, you think back, was Jesus going to not cast the demons out of this little girl? Or was he going to? I think he. I think he's always going to, right? I, I don't think there's a situation where he's going to say, "No, nah, let the demons have her." But yet, this woman didn't know that. And yet, we, we see this woman has such a persistence in worshiping Jesus and crying out for help and and responding to him with with a heart of faith until. It comes to that point that Jesus drew her out, saw her faith, and rewarded her. Well, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable where men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And this is a widow woman who lives in a city with a crooked, horrible judge. Now, we live in a country. It's hard to imagine such a thing. (laughs) But this man didn't like people, and he, did, he was an atheist, an atheistic guy who didn't like people, and he was a judge. And this widow who had no money to bribe him with, he's like, get rid of me. You have nothing to offer me. Why would I even talk to you? But yet she persisted and persisted until finally he said, you're wearing me out, and my reward is never to hear from you again. What do you want? I'll give you everything you want. And Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge said. In other words, you got somebody completely the opposite of God, who loves us, who really likes widows, who really has a tender heart towards widows and orphans, right? And listen to him. If, if he, this man, evil, atheistic man, could be moved through persistence, how much more God, who already wants to bless you, because you're his precious child that he loves, will, will you get? Even if it were the opposite, persistence would win out. How much more when God's for you? So therefore, he ends by saying this after he says, listen, what the unjust is said. He says in Luke 18, 7, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry to him day and night, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What's his definition of faith on the earth? People crying out to him day and night for help. Let's not forget, if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. Amen? Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen and 14. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good. And I would say prayer is the greatest of all goods. For in due season... We shall reap if we do not lose heart. There it is. Luke 18, Jesus told this parable that men would always pray and not lose heart. And Paul comes back in Galatian and says, in due season, you'll reap if you don't lose heart. And so there is this striving in prayer. Moses is there in pain and Aaron's in pain and her's in pain. And they've only been doing this for Eight minutes. Oh, no. It's not even eight in the morning yet. Is this really what God has for me? Is this really what God is saying? The three of us old farts up here have got to wrestle and fight and be in pain and agony and keep this rod up. Until the battle's over, if it comes down, even for a moment, it'll cost somebody their life. In Luke 24, 49, Jesus is, after spending 40 days with them after the resurrection, he tells them, I will send the the promise of the Father to you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are due with power from on high. In Acts, he he says to the assembly together um, on the Mount of Olives, he says, I command them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to what? Wait for the promise of the Father. The one that John the Baptist talked about. He baptized with water, but the Son will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. In Acts 1.8. You will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Well, in verse 9, Peter got up and, and spoke for a bit. Or Jesus was speaking still, excuse me, at this point. And while they watched, and we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 6, there were 500 witnesses of this who he had just commanded to go and to wait in Jerusalem. He departed up into the clouds out of their sight. Angels appeared and said, hey, he's going to come back the same way you saw him go. But they tell them in verse 12, now return to Jerusalem. So Jesus just told them, don't depart. Now he tells them to return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And they entered the upper room. It says they went there and they entered the upper room. But within a few days, I, I don't know how many this, wa- this was. We know it's 10 days total. But within, a, within that 10-day period, it went from 500 people. In, in Acts one fifteen, it went down to 120 people. I, I, I don't think the scripture here is, is saying that. Wow, there was 120 people there. I think he's like, do the math. <laughs> 380 people. Left. But then, after 10 days, on the 50th day, the, after the Passover, is the day of Pentecost had fully come. There was a sound from heaven in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, a rushing mighty wind filled the house where they were sitting and appeared to them divided. Tongues of fire came upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. And Peter went out and preached, and 3,000 souls were saved. Cornelius, the first Gentile to ever be born again, as we understand it. Peter was told by the Lord, go. Talk to this guy. He is a certain man in Acts 10 of Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion called of the Italian regiment, a devout man, one who has feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God how? Always. And in verse 4, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? The Lord speaking to Peter in this trance. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms. This is the Lord, excuse me, speaking to Cornelius. He said, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Cornelius was this man who in his giving and in his praying, there's a statue in heaven if you would, the first man that got saved. So the church was birthed in a 10-day prayer meeting. The first Gentile was saved, a man who prayed always. And Paul tells Timothy, above all duties in the church, the number one duty of the church, therefore I exhort first of all, the top in priority, All these types of prayers happen. Supplication, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks. Be made for all men. Paul said in Romans 15, 30, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, that you strive together. Soon agonizomai. Agonizomai As we get our word agony from it. Soon is together. Together agonize. Like, Like Aaron, like her. Moses, the guy's agonizing in prayer to God for me. So here Paul is saying, through the love of the Spirit, become the type of church that is willing to agonize in prayer to see the gospel go forward. Listen to how Paul's disciples prayed. You wonder why Paul had such success in his ministry. Here's why. It's his errand and hers. It wasn't just Paul having his hands lifted up. It was all these Aaron and hers. In Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who's one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Isn't that a great way to describe what Moses was doing? <laughs> always laboring fervently, keeping that rod up that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Ephesians 6.18 He he exhorts us all at the end of, after explaining to have the armor of God on, he says, praying always with all prayer, supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. So supplication and then more supplication. Uh, Give yourself always to prayer and then persevere in it. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, night and day praying exceedingly that We may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Ezekiel 22.30, God says, so I sought for a man. I I started out looking for a group of people, and then it finally is like, not a group of people, just one guy. I looked for one guy among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it but i found no one we must pray we must get our hands up and then keep our hands up until total victory did jesus agonize in prayer <laughs> yes he did in luke 22:44 and being in what agony he prayed more earnestly His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He comes to his disciples and finds them sleeping because of sorrow. Now, honestly, if you ask me to finish this story, knowing how gracious and gentle and loving of a shepherd Jesus was, and knowing that his disciples had fallen asleep from sorrow, he comes to them and says, go ahead, you need the rest. It's going to be a long next few days. I'm praying. Don't worry about it. Just rest. You're okay, guys. That's what I would have thought. <laughs> but Jesus didn't do that, did he? He came and he's sweaty. And it, the sweat, his blood it, it mixed together in the capillaries are broken. And, and he's sweating There with blood, he's been crying out to the father and he comes to these guys and and he kicks them and he says, what are you doing sleeping? Why are you asleep? Rise and pray They enter not in temptation. And Matthew, he comes to them and finds them again and he says, what, what? Could you not watch one hour with me? You know what? I didn't ask you guys to pray all night like I've done in the past. I just ask you for one measly hour. It's amazing, again, how we think. We prayed an hour. You're kidding. Is that even possible? (laughs) And it didn't kill you? You didn't end up in the ER? (laughs) Try to put that in the bulletin. A one-hour prayer meeting. You can have a church of thousands of people and have a handful of people show up for that, if any. And they would all be old ladies and their little grandkids that they're watching. And he said, why? He said, what? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter in temptation. Then he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I don't think he was like saying, ah, c'est la vie. I think he's saying like, you got to get past that. Everybody's flesh is weak when we pray. It's amazing. All other spiritual duties, as hard as they are, to hear a sermon or to sing, to worship, there's, all, there's always some gratification to us to some degree. The intellect of our mind or the sound of the music, it, 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 it gives us a response. But prayer? No. There's no such, you know, wonderful feelings as when you sing. Or no intellectual things happening with your mind when you pray. It's just the flesh has to die and that's one thing the flesh doesn't like to do. And of course, we could talk about the story of Jacob who wrestled all night with God until he screamed, God bless me, and he did. Or we could speak about Elijah, who is an example of the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man who veils much, who did was not special, spiritual guy. He wasn't a special, smart guy. He wasn't a special, holy guy. He was a man just like you and me, just a regular, everyday guy but he prayed earnestly that was the thing that separated him from most natural people like us well in exodus 17:14 as we come to a close the lord said to moses write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of joshua that i will utterly blot out the remembrance of amalek from under heaven so he's the first time that we know god said write this down so This is the very first scripture ever written. Now, had Moses been writing already uh, the story of Adam and Eve and Noah and the flood? We don't know. We know he eventually did. But this is the first time recorded where God says, write scripture down in the book. We're going to find later this book was put next to the uh, Ark of the Covenant. But the first scripture written is about striving in prayer, agonizing in prayer, painful praying, if you would. The first scripture is written down about how Moses had to keep up his hands above until the battle, till the sun went down and the battle was over. In verse 15, so Moses built an altar and called this name, the Lord is my banner. You know, if you look from a distance and you see a lot of metal, a lot of blood, and everybody starts separating. You, you know who won the battle by whose banner is still up, right? Well, the Lord's banner was up. And it wasn't our victory. It wasn't, you know, Joshua's down there going, man, I'm pretty good with this sword. Oh, and then the next minute, oh, I can't even pick it up. Some guy whoosh, grabs an arrow in the midair going, man, I am a really great warrior. I can't even miss with this bow. Man, to watch would you see how far I threw that spear? That was, I'm amazing. Down in the valley, they're thinking it was them and their ability. But we know from the picture here, and he tells him to record it in the sight of Joshua. What do you think when Joshua was reading that? What? Every time your hands went down, we lost? It wasn't about how good we did in the valley? no the victory isn't about how good or how bad you did in the valley. Victory was had everything to do with Moses laboring and prayer. You see, that's, that's the point. The first scripture is, guys, victory is going to come through laboring and prayer. And I know that we see what's happening in the valley, but it's not. It's when we're up on the mountaintop. That's where the real victory happens. And so the Lord is our banner. Later in Song of Solomon, Solomon talking about his bride and the bride talking about her husband, which is the Lord. It says, he brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. And so we say, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is the one who brings victory the Lord in his love watches over us and then the final verse 16 and he said because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation so even though that Amalek will one day be destroyed we're gonna keep fighting Amalek <laughs> because Amalek is a type of the flesh when we're weak And when we're weary and we're half-hearted, he's always going to show up to start picking us off, to start trying to take us down. And it's going to be prayer and laboring in prayer that's going to overcome it. And so we have to set our mind on the things of the spirit, not the things of the flesh. We got to make no provision for the flesh. We need to walk in the spirit because the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. We do not do as we wish. But as Paul said, we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live living in this flesh. Now it's by faith. Interesting in First Peter two eleven, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which what war against the soul. It's really a spiritual battle, wasn't it? The Amalek messing with them, and God saying Joshua would go down there and turn and fight them, and and the whole thing was spiritual. It wasn't about Amalek and their strength. It wasn't about Joshua and his strength. It was a spiritual battle of the flesh, if you would, against the spirit. Those who are in the will of God struggling, and those who are against the will of God. So we end by saying, especially for us in the last days, Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What is that look like to, to the Lord? In Luke eighteen seven, he said, It's when his own elect are crying out to him day and night. Peter says it best in 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, let us be serious and watchful in our prayers. Well, any thoughts or questions or insights before we go into